Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 112 of the Citrix Session. I'm your host, Andy Whiteside. I'm uh, on site at the airport. I think I had a guy next to me just now joking to his friend on the phone about uh, living at the Charlotte airport. I can't say that because usually I fly out at 6 a.m., so there's no time to no time to waste, grab a coffee, and go. But uh, this week, next week, and the following week, I'll be hanging out here for the afternoon trying to catch a, a flight out west. So I'm uh, going to get plenty of time to get stuff done at the airport. Uh, with us, we have a couple of our normal uh, hosts, uh, co-hosts. We've got Todd Smith from Citrix. Todd is now the uh, Director of Sales Engineers for Canada. Todd, how's it going? Uh, very good, Andy. Um, I share your uh, your travel woes. Um, it took me, I was coming back from Columbus, Ohio last Friday, and it uh, I probably could have walked back to Boston faster than I was able to get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, had the infamous luggage didn't show up until late Saturday night from a Friday morning flight. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, for those of us who are wishing to get back on the road, uh, we're living, living the dream right now. So cannot wait to, uh, start traveling up to, uh, to Canada, like we talked about last week. I was just, uh, holding up one of my bottomless Patagonia bags, which I somehow managed to get four or five days worth of clothes in every time. Um, it's essential, man. I, I can't imagine checking luggage at this point. Yeah. So we also have uh, Jeremy Myers with us. Jeremy is the Director of Sales Engineering for the East Coast now. Jeremy, what, that's uh, official two weeks, three weeks? Two weeks-ish. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know what? Maybe we do this one together next week. I'll be in the airport. Actually, I'll be in the airport in a couple hours, but I'll also be in the airport um, making a very strange flight to Raleigh from Charlotte, which, as you know, is uh, an entire, I think it's a seven-minute flight. But it's only because my uh, my next flight will be down to Fort Lauderdale and the only way to make it work mm. Uh, because I got to stick my truck somewhere. <laughs> it's too flat a rally from Charlotte. So there you go. I can, I can relate. I've, um, I think I've driven to Raleigh, flown back to Charlotte, had to get to Raleigh to get my car and drive it back somewhere. It's I just, I saw myself uh, in a scenario where I would land somewhere and go, where the heck is my vehicle? It's not on the fourth floor of the deck. It's in a different city. That would you, well, that's interesting. Where do you, where do you park your car? I, I park on the fourth floor of the daily deck in the same area every time. Period. I, I park on the fourth floor of the daily deck every time in the same spot. Period. Uh, it depends on. Well, let me let me say this right. So I try to be a good steward, and I've noticed the prices in the deck have gone up. So I've started going. I used to be the hourly deck. Now I moved to the daily deck, and it just depends on when yeah. you show up. So my last two or three times out have been on the roof because people are flying again a lot. Yeah. And uh, the decks are full. Yeah. And I've gotten used to my truck. Go ahead, Todd. Sorry, I was going to say, I've I've gotten you back in the habit of uh, dropping a pin on where I park the car um, and also taking photographs of the the, the actual room numbers, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where I'm I'm staying and what hotels and things like that. So uh, I don't know whether that's a sign of age or a sign that we're getting back to uh, somewhat normal travel schedules. We have never sounded we have never sounded more old in our lifetime. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it's also it's also a sign of how much you drink. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> well, guys, we are fortunate to have with us a uh, Citrix legend, um, Patrick Coble out of Nashville, Tennessee. Patrick is the leader of the Nashville, or one of the leaders of the National uh, Nashville uh, Citrix User Group community, and a, and a huge contributor to the Citrix community just in general for as long as I've known him. Patrick, how's it going? 
Uh, doing good. Doing good. I'm uh, I'm a little tired. I did uh, 25 miles of uh, kayaking with my son with the scouts this weekend. So, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I'm a, so it was super fun. It was hot. I'm, uh, I'll probably get caught up on sleep uh, in a day or two. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Was it like rapids or just uh, flat water? Uh, l- just little baby things every there. Uh, the best part was is we decided to, uh, you know, crash land at like a sandbar so that we could all have lunch together. And we picked the best sandbar to go to because it was 100% entertainment because there was a nice shallow section, but on the left-hand side of that bank, it was, it was, it was gusher rapid with a tree stump that had fallen down. So people were crashing left and right canoes into canoes. So it was, it was entertaining. Uh, I saved a dude's phone in a Ziploc bag uh, because he, he, he biffed it after a canoe ran into him. And uh, I jumped in and saved this little Ziploc bag that was floating with his phone in it. And I was like, oh, you know, I guess I did my good deed for the day, you know? Yeah. The thing you have to do as a parent or a scout leader, um, yep. it, it never ends. Man, that's crazy. Well, guys, so, uh, but I was to say, where, where were you at, Patrick? Were you on the Cumberland or were you somewhere else? A little bit outside uh, the, of town. The, the Buffalo River. So out, out, uh, basically west from here, about an hour and some change. So not really a ton of rapids, but it was good. And the shade was key uh, in those hot days. Heck yeah, man, it's fantastic. Well, guys, let's uh, let's jump into this. I know we could chit chat forever, and it would be great, really. Um, but um, the topic we've chosen for today, the blog from the Citrix blog site, is DAS D A A S. I'll never forget the first time I said SAS uh, in front of Jeremy, uh, and we were confusing each other. We didn't know if we were talking about SAS, the software company based out of Raleigh, or SAS, the software as a service topic. Uh, and then finally, we got on the same page about five minutes into the conversation. I, Jeremy, you probably don't remember that, but I remember. That, probably, that was a customer I had for for a couple of minutes there, right? So that was very confusing for sure. I do remember that. Uh-oh, did we lose Andy? Andy's on mute. He's oh. muted himself. Sorry, I got a, my Zoom had a hiccup, and then uh, it came back. Sorry about that. I'm recording this to the web, so hopefully... Hopefully, I'm at the airport, you know, uh, American Airlines Lounge, Wi-Fi. We'll see if the cloud saves us or not. I think it will. It's been, it's been good to me mm-hmm. in the past. Really good, really. That's the cloud. I mean, that's a great example of how the cloud can be a savior. You know, back in the day, that would have been a, that would have been the end of our podcast, what just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, topic today is uh, from a, uh, one of the Citrix employees, Heather Tat, and I think on the consulting side. Um, you guys tell me if you know differently, but the topic is DAS, D-A-A-S, or VDI, which is best for your organization, which I think is extremely interesting. Right? I've talked to all kinds of companies we're part of. We joined the uh, digital, um, digital Workspace Ecosystem Alliance today so that we could kind of help educate people on what's what in this uh, space, um, the Integrated. Um, we, we, we really uh, have a you know, goal to help customers get educated on what's, what, what one is versus the other and then what they mean to you, Mr. Customer. I, I think I'd love for Todd to kind of explain the topic and why it's important and also maybe layer in Citrix changing the name of your as-a-service offerings to be DAS all-encompassing versus the, uh, the legacy, you know, the, the Zen uh, virtual app, and I about called it Zen Desktop, virtual app and desktop service offering, or excuse me, virtual app and desktop versus virtual app and desktop service 
virtual app and desktop services now, all things including DAS, including what I would have called DAS before that. Um, Todd, why is this topic so big and so confusing? Yeah, so, so Andy, you just confused even myself on, on, on your explanation on, on all of the different historic names that we've had um, for VDI or virtual apps and, and virtual desktops, right? So if I, if I go back and look at, you know, when we first had Zen app and Zen desktop, it was pretty prevalent as to what we're talking about, right? We're talking about application virtualization and then desktop virtualization. Uh, then we came out with Citrix virtual apps and desktops, which kind of combined some of the licensing as well as some of the capabilities. Uh, and then as we introduced Citrix virtual apps and desktop service, that was our first real foray into hosting the infrastructure up in the cloud, uh, leveraging that control plane. So delivering the traditional uh, virtual apps and virtual desktops, uh, leveraging a cloud-based uh, management infrastructure. Um, and then, you know, Gartner kind of threw us a little bit of a curveball and they came out with DAS as a definition of the marketplace, right? So if you look at desktop as a service, it includes traditional BDI. It can, you know, it also includes the managed service uh, component of delivering a virtual app or a virtual desktop. Um, and there's a couple of flavors of that management piece of it, right? It could be delivered completely as a turnkey service like we have now, um, or it could be something that a partner or a customer chooses to leverage uh, kind of at the same time. The challenge here is that the, the DAS component, the DAS name has kind of encompassed everything, right? So for customers who have VDI, you know, an on-prem VDI solution, um, you know, that falls under DAS. For customers who are using a true desktop as a service, like Citrix managed desktops or uh, some other branded offering that any of our partners have that are that are specific to, to them, um, being able to, to include that under the DAS uh, title as well. Um, but really what it comes down to is the ability to get pretty much anything you need that includes applications, Desktop operating systems, which we've talked in the past about, you know, a desktop operating system is really a giant app. Um, and connecting it in with your data as well as all of the other services, it kind of encompasses all of those components into one, one kind of definition. So DAS is where we're at with that. So real quick, because I know Andy, if you let him, will go off on the definition of EDI in the first place. So this is something yeah. that we've debated over you know, um, for, for years, right? So VDI or server-based computing, like all those kinds of things. But I mean, I think Todd, what you're trying to say is that historically there was kind of two different, there's like a fork in the road, either VDI, which was something that you as a customer completely owned and managed. And DAS was always like something that was completely owned and managed from a, like a vendor perspective. And I don't mean just as we know it today, you know, there's several different iterations, but desktops, management, the whole nine yards was, it was almost like Amazon workspaces versus you hosting all of this yourself. And I guess where we've landed is it's actually a little bit of a spectrum, right? So there is a VDI and that's typically an on-premise type solution uh, or something that you completely host and manage in a cloud, right? There's nothing stopping you from standing up an entire infrastructure of VDI, but in say AWS. Um, but now we've got a DAS, but sort of a hybrid kind of solution. And, and I think that's what Gartner felt like they needed to go through and define, right? There is a, 
there is a model of DAS, which is put a quarter in and get a desktop, right? And that host, that that hyperscaler will completely host and manage the entire stack. Or, and this is where Citrix sits, where, you know, a piece of that is managed by Citrix. And then it's kind of up to you to decide where those workloads need to live. And I think that's where we've seen most of our customers land is it's definitely a mixture of offload what you can, but then manage where you need to, more importantly, where you need to where you need to manage. It. And that could be, you know, I think this is what this article gets into based on cost, based on security, based on, you know, any number of non-technical regulation. Um, you know, I think this is where this solution sits. So Patrick, yeah. as a player in this system, do you, do you, do you feel like Gartner and the major vendors like Citrix that are going this route where if it's coming as a service, it could be considered DAS, whether it's apps or uh, secure apps or VDI or server desktops. Do you think that's helping with the confusion or making it worse? I think it's a little bit of both because uh, I think we've all kind of hit on it is VDI was like that term that kind of glued all the things going like remote delivery of application. And then the term workspace was dovetailed into that to have SaaS apps and other things. And now DAS is just uh, another thing that we've been talking about, I guess, for probably 10 plus years but it's always been hosted by someone or something else. And now it's being hosted by the Citrix, the VMwares, the Microsofts, the in now even like a Nutanix uh, and other players uh, out there that are either doing the brokering or the brokering plus the hosting. And so I, I've seen a lot of growth in it. It reminds me of kind of the 2008 to 2000, probably 11, like VDI trade up days of the Citrix world where everybody's doing something two for one special, this and that. Um, but in my opinion, from what I've seen, it's like uh, it's really hard for every depending on where you're at financially to be able to pay X about per user per month per machine. Uh, and that financial difference is massive when you compare to that traditional on-site deployment in some data center anywhere that you control for the past 30 years. So that's kind of the big one for me. But yeah, the confusion is is abundant everywhere on it. So Patrick, is it um, are you most disappointed because the year of VDI that we kept saying was coming next year is never going to happen because we're moving the term to DAF? That that's correct. Yeah. It'll 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 never happen in that sense. But I think one thing that has still been impressive to me is that it's still the market itself still still seems like it's growing. And I thought that it would slow down. Uh, and then especially post-COVID, I thought everybody has probably bought all the things they were going to buy for their work to support the work from home users. But it still just keeps coming. The hits keep coming. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. and the development too from Citrix VMware uh, and then Microsoft too. I mean, it's it's those big three in that, in that space, in my opinion, uh, are really kind of drive the driving force of what Gartner is going to call DAS or any other place. Yeah. I think it creates a huge opportunity for folks like Patrick and I, and even folks on the Citrix team to just really go help educate customers on what is VDI versus DAS and how VDI became DAS in some cases and really help customers start to see what the field looks like and where the finish line for them, or at least closer to the finish line might might look like. Let's let's break it down into what uh, Heather brought up here. Let's, uh, Jeremy, you want to take the cost savings conversation for us? Yeah. So, um, 
I mean, there's a couple of pieces here that it touches on. One is the pay-per-user subscription model, which is certainly a thing, right? Um, and obviously, that depends on what DAS model we're talking about here. But you know, a lot of cases, you know, the Citrix model looks like this. There is a management plane that Citrix hosts, right? And it's responsible for the brokering. It's responsible for a lot of the features, right? Because those are defined uh, in a lot of cases on the back end. But and this is one of the first conversations we have with customers when we talk about this is, you know, the desktops, the virtual desktops, the virtual apps, you know, those are going to sit in a data center of that makes the most sense. In a lot of cases, what's driving that data center is the cost, right? You know, what sort of deal did I get with Microsoft in terms of, of spend? You know, maybe... Uh, maybe I've got some technical debt that I've got to, you know, that I can't write off the books yet. And so I need to put some of these desktops on-prem, you know, so there's an opportunity to to literally, you know, have the brains, you know, basically the management piece sitting in one location and um, you can sort of manage costs by putting those desktops wherever they need to sit that makes the most sense from a cost perspective. Now, that's not the only variable that you need to consider, but this is clearly one of the biggest ones that customers are are considering. And, you know, honestly, one of the biggest use cases there is DR, right? So in the case in the past, you know, I might have to stand up an entire second data center to support, you know, a DR motion. Um, now I can do it, you know, on demand in the cloud and have a mixture of like something on-prem as well as something in a hyperscaler just to support, you know, that scenario, but do it at a, a smaller price point than what I might've had to do 10 years ago. Sorry to come off mute. Um, Todd, any other thoughts on the, the cost savings piece? I know, as, as Jeremy pointed out, and as we all know, you know, a, a server-hosted desktop that, that you invest in and, and provide to yourself versus a true desktop as a serv service that's all-inclusive from, say, a WorkSpot or a Citrix uh, or a Microsoft. Um, obviously, cost cost is going to be where it's going to be, and how do you make sure you get the, the most value for that spend? And, and I think I think if I look at this, Andy, when you when you talk about you know the overall cost, um, oftentimes you know architects and data center architects and the folks who are scaling out building out these environments, uh, you know they never wanted to have a user that said, "Hey, I don't have a resource available to me." So you know we were trained back in the early days of doing an N plus one architecture model. Um, so that we'll never be without capacity or capabilities. And the problem is, is that in a, in a DAS model, in a service model, you know, you're paying for those things to always be available, right? So, so it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's where, you know, as Jeremy was talking about the, you know, the scalability or the DR capabilities, you can't really talk about cost savings without talking about, um, how do I manage scalability? And I know that's the next, that, that's kind of the next bullet item on this, uh, on this blog, but it really comes down to, you know, how much are you really going to need and how do you expand it and not only expand it, but be able to contract it as well. Right. So, um, you know, whether it be a, you know, if you're in retail, right, you have a busy season where you're ramping up and adding additional, uh, employees to your to your stores, or if you are in healthcare, you need to add additional resources uh, based on things like the pandemic. Or if you're, uh, you know, you're in financial services and you're now seeing a large number of interns coming in for the summer. Those are all those are you don't plan those for the entire year. You plan those on having to, the ability to scale out 
and then scale back when the need is no longer there. Um, that's always been a challenge with some of these BDI infrastructures is how do you build it out so that you meet the maximum number of the maximum capacity that's needed at that time and not have to worry about going out and contracting additional resources um, to meet those needs. And so Todd, you kind of blended into the scalability conversation and that, yep. that really takes on two tasks, right? And one is the infrastructure that's, well, first of all, it's having a technology in place that can scale in terms of the, um, the, the platform that's managing the whole thing, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also the scalability of the infrastructure as well as the scalability of the, the resources that are still needed to manage it. And, you know, who's going to take on what, how you make that scale up and scale down scenario work. Um, so let's go on to the next two. Uh, Jeremy, Todd, any, any specifics around cost saving or scalability that you kind of want to add before we move into what I'm going to call security, and then we're going to come back to management and ask Patrick to kind of tie in both because, as was discussed on my team call this morning, uh, ITSM and, and management and change control, uh, all that uh, is important, but security is what comes out of that if you do it right. But uh, scalability and cost, any other topic questions, comments on that, including Patrick? You know what, honestly, I would say what's driven a lot of scalability requirement recently has just been supply chain. So even if you wanted to do stuff on-prem, you know, right now it's tough to get hardware on-prem. So you know, I think that's forced the hand of certain customers. They've had to maybe look at the cloud, but they haven't considered that in the past. And, you know, the fact that you've got a, you know, like a DAS management plane that could sit you anywhere, it's been easy, right? So, you know, there's always been some 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 typical use cases. So M&A, always the biggest one. Seasonal workers, always the biggest one. But, you know, just, you know, very practically, just supply chains come up, become a big issue in the last two years. And that's driven a lot of scalability concerns for sure. I'm going to use your comment on the cloud just now to point out the Andeism, which is it's the cloud, oh right? And mm -hmm. sometimes and sometimes that might be, you know, Zintegra infrastructure that can host desktops. It might be Equinix that uh, hosts infrastructure. It might be, Microsoft Azure, it might be GCP, it might be AWS, and it might be many, many other options around clouds. Um, but having the platform that Citrix has, which has the ability to bring in all of the above simultaneously, is just a huge asset. I was in a conversation this morning with a, a, a company, a vendor that only does AWS, GCP, uh, and Azure, and uh, they it was kind of a kind of a conversation around, okay, what about private clouds? And they said, well, we might do that someday. And I was like, well, that's that's massive limitations right there for us. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, so let's uh so let's bring Patrick in here. Patrick, it's interesting and, and I won't I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but the security topic is the last of all the topics. And my guess is if you started with security, you'd probably end up on all the other topics along the way. Um Patrick who uh, his company BDI Sec does a lot of um does a lot of uh, security audits of uh, BDI, and I guess now we'll say DAS environments uh, for Zintegra as a, as a partner relationship of ours. Patrick, you wanna cover the uh, DAS versus BDI conversation as it relates to security? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the thing I like the most about DAS when it comes to security is in most cases, you are able to have more security features out of the box um, as in you're entitled to app protection and ant security analytics, if we're talking about Citrix and even from 
AWS, from VMware, uh, not so much Microsoft, but there's a lot of features that are bundled into your DAS subscription that might not be currently bundled in whatever your entitlement level is for your on-prem one. So you can gain some security features that are a little more fancy and cool, which I, of course, I like that uh, since that's what I focus on is VDI security. But then, you know, Going to anything cloud, you still have to be very mindful of your tenant, who controls it, the keys of the kingdom. If you're developing apps and things like that, it's it's one click away for a public repo from a private repo. Um, along with if you just go next, next, next in Azure or AWS or pretty much any cloud provider, depending on how what level of control you're getting, you could have your dangly bits uh, hanging out in the internet. And uh, so now it has a public IP, whereas before that Citrix server, that RDS server uh, would not be hanging out on the Internet where anyone in the world could contact. Uh, So you really have to pay attention to security when you go to any DAS platform uh, or going to any cloud to migrate any of your workloads. And it's a very common oversight that I see all the time. And. Um, you know, one thing that we are, that I was going to add to on the scalability front, and I've been a part of a couple of large organizations doing uh, migrations and upgrades into the cloud. And depending on what data center is there, it, it's not all you can eat buffet. Um, I've seen many common VM types run out of allocation in certain data centers across the world from Amazon and from uh, Azure. And so, I think we're starting to, you know, because it seemed like the cloud is all the awesome and it is, but there are starting to be real limits met with certain VM types. The But I'm still blown away with how fast network connections are between the regions uh, into the gigabits and terabits. Uh, it's just insane that I can have a virtual desktop in London and be using my hillbilly internet where I'm at in Tennessee. And it's like, good, move that same desktop to India. And it's still just as good with just a little bit more hiccups. And it kind of blows me away. Um, But yeah, the security features uh, are a little more bundled in some of the DAS things, um, but you have to pay attention to what you're doing with your cloud um, because otherwise it won't mean anything. Patrick, I got so many, there's so many things that just popped in my head based on what you just said, like that entire thing. But, you know, the first one was, I do remember maybe the first six months of, you know, the pandemic where a lot of folks were having to spend things up in the cloud. Um, I very vividly remember like East EMEA, somewhere in in Europe, like there was a two or three different instance types that just completely stopped um, spinning up. In fact, if you didn't have a reserved instance, there were, there were chances where VDA stopped registering because there was no instance site, right? So if you powered it off, there's a good chance it wouldn't come back up, which I thought was was fascinating and I had never seen before. I always thought the cloud was like infinite supply. There was never an issue and my eyes were open. I am not going to lie. Yeah, no, gonna lie. And, it, and, and, it, and it still happens from time to time. And the only thing that I've seen that most one of the most important things of people going in the cloud is make sure you're monitoring it. 
mm-hmm. you have some analytics because your mileage will vary every single day, right? And that's based on the host you're on, what they're doing, what you're doing, how many people are streaming Fortnite in there, you know, watching, you know, Tiger King. So all those things on your local side and their side, that's where, you know, I know y'all are big partner with Control Up too. And, you know, I love what they do. That's where having that analytics and visibility uh, is also going to affect your scalability too, right? So that you mm-hmm. know, like, oh, I've got enough instances, we're good versus to your point, some instances don't register because we're out of that instance on US East 2 and Azure on a yep. Tuesday. Like, oh, but it's good tomorrow or it's good in a couple hours. But yeah, you got to really pay attention to that stuff. The other thing too is you brought up security. And um, it's funny, when I first got my hands on Azure, uh, what blew me away, I'm going to ask you this question. You might not know the answer, but you're right. When you click next, 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 blindly when creating a new instance type, it does two things that I thought were a little suspect out of the gate, but, and I'm still trying to figure out why it's the default, but number one, uh, it wants to assign a public IP by default. Mm-hmm. And then number two, it wants to enable RDP by default as well. And I, and I want to say the security group that gets added as well automatically opens up, you know, 3389. Uh-huh. And so if you, all things being equal, just blew through the install. Now you've got a, you've got a virtual machine sitting on the internet, publicly exposed with RDP and you doesn't take long for you to see the brute force attack start to take off folks trying yeah. to hit it. It's amazing. Yeah, there, there, there's about 10,000 IPs that scan the whole internet every single day, right? The mm-hmm. whole IP space. And out of those 10,000, you know, those are a lot of those are like Shodan, right? So like, mm-hmm. you know, some OSINT kind of fun stuff that you can do. So it keeps track of all the, you know, 3389s open up in the world. Um, but yeah, I, I, I understand why they did it. Um, but the my biggest gripe of that default next, 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 you can RDP to it, uh, is that's not secure by design. And the cloud was intended to be for, and I guess, and maybe it, it is the wrong intention, but was intended for admins, right? For IT people that are hopefully there. But it seems like their UI of making a machine in Azure or, you know, AWS is a little bit different um, with his default rules and the wizards, because it will warn you quite a few times, like, hey, you're about to put something on the public Internet where Azure's like, click, 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 click. It's on there. Thanks. So it made me feel like it was just like user centric. Um, And so I have done audits of people that have thousands to tens of thousands of VMs in multiple cloud tenants. And when we do a couple's network security group audits, they're blown away that there's 580 sitting on the internet, you know, and 312 here and 16 there. And I didn't even think we had VMs on in this tenant. And that's where it goes back to that cost shuffle of DAS being like a, a flat fee, uh, you know, from like Microsoft, whether it's on or off, like AVD is, you know, based on the consumption, but the cloud PC and the business PC under those two umbrellas for business and enterprise, you get charged the same amount, whether the VM's on or off. And right. so then it's like, oh, well, who cares? Uh, but, you know, what we still see is it still impacts the rest of the people in that same tenant and data center. So, yeah, you're right. So going back, I'm sorry, go ahead, Amy. No, I was just gonna. Well, my comment's gonna be: I love the scalability. I love the ability to integrate with all mm-hmm. these things. I love the ability to to put it on the internet, take it off the internet. Uh, but but it kind of goes back to the original days of Microsoft, and you, it's there to make things work and make it easy to work. But at the same time, all the possible negatives from a security perspective comes comes rushing through 
if you're not careful, uh, I, the first thing that came to my mind is Patrick's talking about how, how easy it was when Microsoft came out with it, uh, Internet Information Server, IIS. Next thing you know, everybody and their brother had a, had a web server, and mm-hmm. uh, it, was, uh, it, it was almost wide open. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the other thing that comes to mind with security is, uh, I guess, two things. When we start talking about DAS and potentially offloading some management components um, to, a, to a provider is one, um, you know, reducing your attack surface. So, you know, that's a big deal in security departments. But the number two, you know, Patrick, how much are you seeing uh, just regulations drive the security posture, oh. especially these days uh, in some of these models? It's, it's steer- well, I, I think not the, the, those types of policies, it's the insurance that's steering the boat more than anything. The cybersecurity insurance back in, say, call it the 80s, 90s of you getting car insurance, it was just based on your age, right? It didn't mm-hmm. really pull a lot of stuff. There wasn't lots of national databases to find out how, like, how good a driver you really were or not good. good. Uh, whereas now they're they're pulling your credit report and they're pulling this and correlating all these data points to be like, yeah, they pay their bills on time and they're here. They don't have any tickets that are there. That's what's happened to cybersecurity insurance after billions of dollars have been paid out and ransoms uh, disclosed and undisclosed um, that changed the game. Cybersecurity insurance providers were losing money. Uh, And so I've seen people that have gone from, you know, three, you know, $3,000 a month to 10 or $3,000 a year to $10,000 a year. And I've seen policies go from 80,000 to 200 and 300,000. And it's because they're sending a survey to them that says, like one of the first questions is, do you have multi-factor authentication turned on, right? Do you have any advanced threat protection? What products for AV, what SIM are you using? So they're actually like real valid questions of like foundational cybersecurity stuff. And if you hit yes or no, your policy just went up or down. And uh, that has completely just turned the whole world upside down because now people are like, oh, what what's a what what is CIS and what's a NIST policy and a DOD STIG and all those compliance bodies and frameworks that are like, we have to get this turned on because if we don't have CIS level one turned on, then our insurance is going to go up by 20%, you know, and we have MFA and we have this. So cybersecurity insurance is not cheap anymore. It's not an all-you-can-eat buffet uh, because they just paid out too much and people's bad habits uh, of IT hygiene and things like that have pretty much, you know, completely blown up that market. And uh, it's it's been pretty eye-opening to see uh, and being part of security audits that are trying to help them because, the, you know, they have those questions now too. Have you had a penetration test? Have you had vulnerability management scans and stuff like that? Where Whereas before it was just like company size, revenue, this, this, how many systems, cool. Oh yeah, it's $32,000 a year. That same customer now has, you know, 40 page survey to fill out and now it's $192,000 a year. Like, whoa, that's wild. And, yeah, and Patrick, I, Patrick, you brought up bad habits. I mean, these are bad habits that came over from the desktop days, which were bad mm-hmm. then. You take that and put it to something that's uh, publicly addressable potentially oh, yeah. or closer yep. to the crown jewels. Yep. Uh, wow, watch out. Mm-hmm, agreed. And I think Patrick, you brought up a you brought up an interesting point about the security audits that are going in there, where the insurance companies are going in and saying, "Hey, here's a questionnaire." That's the first step, right? The second step is they're going to tell you all of the things that need to be fixed, or else your policy is null and void, right? Totally. Or they're not you're not going to be eligible to 
get compensated in case you do have something that goes wrong um, because they've already warned you about it, right? So this is the this is the law of unintended consequences, right? You get it, you go out and get cyber insurance and it finds out you have to go and fix all these things. And, you know, I was doing IT auditing when Sarbanes-Oxley first came out and, you know, we were IT's best friend because we'd identify all these things that they were going to fail a Sarbanes-Oxley audit on unless they fixed it. And now all of a sudden IT was saying, hey, we've, we finally got money to go and do a active directory scrub and fill or clean up the backup system and do all of these other tasks. And I think this next big step in this cyber insurance um, conversation is really going to be, how do we make sure that we're in compliance with not only the government regulations that are out there, but also you know, a cyber insurance policy that's out there? Mm-hmm. Um, very similar when you're a homeowner and they come back and tell you, hey, you need to cut the shrubs around your put around your house because they're a fire hazard. You know what? They're not going to give you fire insurance. If you do, you're going to have to pay a, a considerable higher rate, right? There's there's just it, it's becoming more and more of a finally we've got someone watching and forcing IT to have good behavior and good habits. Yeah. And who would have thought even in my, you know, being around as long as a bunch of us have in IT, that the insurance company would be doing more for IT security and cleanups and all that than any other product or outside acting force, right? Like insurance is like, yeah, you need to get that done. You need to trim those bushes. You need to pull that out. You need to get a fire hydrant installed here, right? Like you're out of fire code too, you know? So it's, it's, it's wild. Well, think about it. It's the same in every other aspect of the general lives we live. You'll, you'll leave those bushes out of control. Some people will until the neighborhood HOA starts finding you. Yep. <clears throat> okay. So we, we jumped down to security in this article to blend back in some of the other conversations we, I assumed would come up out of management and integration, but we should probably go back into the management conversation real quick. Um, Todd, you want to take the rest of what we didn't cover around management from the security aspect and uh, yeah. talk, about, talk about how DAZ and BDI compare to each other there? Yeah, so, so I think we're, we've got a couple of things to hit on here when it comes to management, right? Management is two things. One of them is control and the other one is visibility, right? So being able to have a centralized management aspect where, you know, we all we've all heard and talked about this one single pane of glass view of the operations and all that stuff, right? But it really does come down to if you can manage it centrally from one organization or from one group or from one console, uh, it's going to be you're going to you're apt to miss out on little minute details. Um, if you also have good management policies, you're going to not miss. Uh, not miss those false flags or those 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 bothersome alarms that are going off, right? Uh, you want to be able to have uh, the tripwires out there that are going to tell you that something happened and that it's already automatically been remediated, where you're just getting notified that something has been fixed, right? So there's there's that aspect of it. And that ties into the only way you can do that effectively is to have visibility. So the analytics piece of it, being able to have not only the visibility, but also being able to act upon it. And that all kind of ties into 
a, a much stronger working environment that is both secure, but it's also, you know, very proficient and efficient as well as being, you know, resilient and also operationally effective for the user, right? You're going to give, give the user a great experience, but if it comes at the cost of giving up security or not being able to manage a problem, I mean, you think about it, a lot of the bad habits that we have just been talking about came out of that, that equation of I can improve security, but I'm going to have a bad user experience or vice versa. And nine times out of 10, we in the IT field, we would say we're going to sacrifice security for user experience because the security folks don't come and yell at our CIO like the users do when they have a bad experience. Yeah, was it just a battle we chose not to fight? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you had that conversation, right? We're in a, we're in a situation now with, with cloud platforms and um, PaaS solutions where we have the ability to manage and also endpoint management better than ever before. So we have a fighting chance now and we can't continue to look away. Yeah. And in some okay, cases, Andy, um, you want to, some of the best ways to manage it is to take away those threat vectors and those access points, right? So, you know, if if you're at risk because you have data stored on an endpoint device or you're downloading information to someone's, you know, iPhone or tablet, um, why don't we just do something like take access away and have them force that user to a virtual desktop or to a virtualized application? where you don't have to worry about data leakage. You don't have to give up control of that data. Um, you know, this is a conversation that we've been having with customers for 10 plus years. Data on the endpoints is one of your biggest risks out there. It, it's not as much because that's the least, that's the component that you have the least amount of control over. Yeah, there's no way to eliminate the physical loss of the device if there's data there. It's just that's how I prove to people security all the time. I just wait till they go to the restroom and I just take their laptop and then ask them how secure it is. At, at best, the answer, well, it's encrypted, but a lot of times that's not the case. Hey, would you guys agree that um, our platform from the end user perspective is stronger than ever so that they now know that because of the security stuff they see on the news that they can't fight us for user experience on every at every turn when we have to add security to what is their IT world? I think folks understand it now. Like in the past, um, it was definitely a nuisance for a lot of for a lot of users. But I think because a lot of these security threats have hit consumers on a personal level, um, they get it right. So the whole idea of having multi-factor on some kind of personal account. If I connect to my Gmail account from a device I've not connected to before, I get asked to go. You know, just acknowledge that that was actually me. Whereas five years ago. I saw physicians getting a fight over passwords being 90 days, just things like that, right? So I think uh, as an industry, um, um, you know, obviously we're still trying to streamline that process for sure. But at the end of the day, I think there's an understanding from end users that, you know, participating as a part of security is important to the business, right? And so I've noticed a, a big change for sure. So Patrick is the guy that gets to run around here with the security stick. Do you have to consider the user experience in your responses or you just. Oh, to totally. Because uh, there's no point in locking down something that you've made unusable. Right. 
Uh, we, but the most important part of that is we know we're going to have to make some mitigations, some deviations so that things can work. And especially when you talk about old, old fashioned applications. So you're going to have to adjust things. You, you, what you can do is try to apply as much, as many policies as you can and know which gaps are open. Um, so like I still deal with a lot of people that still have to have macros enabled for business applications that do finance related things. Uh, so we do what we can to secure that. And we know that that's an attack avenue that is still going to be possible on those systems for those users, but every other system, it's not allowed to happen. So we've got to, you know, choose our battles. Um, and, you know, you you can't boil the ocean and just think that you're going to secure all the things and it's going to be good. So you've got to take baby steps and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a journey and it never stops, uh, especially with new attack uh, vectors coming all the time. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm updating a privacy pr uh, presentation that I'm doing in a few minutes here. And, you know, like ISO files and link files are now becoming a very cool way to break into people's systems. And a link file seems like it's like so benign, uh, but what you can stuff into that link and what your browser will execute is kind of amazing. Uh, and there's, there's, there is, I guess, malware as a service when it comes to those link creations. There's a company, there's a team slash company that makes that software that is a GUI and everything. So you're just like, click, click, click. I wanted to run PowerShell, click, click, click there, here, there, there. Here's their domain name, click, click, click. Next, it generates the link. You copy and paste it, add it as an attachment to an email, to your phishing campaign. Anyone clicks that link, very bad things start happening. And it's like, it's just a link, just a .lnk that's being sent via email. And so we talk about DAS or, you know, VDI or just regular endpoints. Like it's just these threats are coming from all angles. So you got to do what you can and, um, and just keep chug chipping away at it. Hey guys, we're, we're going to run out of time. Uh, I, I'll take the moment uh, based on Patrick's comment there to make sure people know to reach out to him, reach out to us about his uh, VDI security assessments. He will find a lot of stuff. I don't care who you are. Um, <laughs> about you, your organization, your VDI, um, your leadership personally, uh, just a great resource to have out there. Um, um, I did want to make sure we left a few moments here for Todd to explain this video at the bottom, which I'm going to hit play <laughs> on and with mute. Uh, what is what is DJ Daz versus Notorious VID, uh, VDI? Oof, VID. Yeah. Uh, VDI, yes. Todd. Yeah, so Andy, I, I'm, I'm a little kind of uh, challenged in the fact that they didn't call this DJ Dazzy Dazzle, bring back the uh, Dazzle. That would have name. been the jam. And, uh, you know, Notorious VDI, obviously, uh, a big shout out to uh, Notorious BIG uh, out there. But it really kind of talks about, you know, where the different options are. And it really does come down to do I really need a true VDI infrastructure to be able to do my job, or do I only need access to just that application? And this is something that we have had kind of in our in our wheelhouse for a while here at Citrix. And one of the things that is that was a challenge when we first rolled out VDI is we were giving people a full-blown desktop when all they needed was access to the application itself. But VDI was a much simpler way to deliver that application and all of the supporting components in a desktop as opposed to giving it out in a uh, in a true blown just a focused application. 
right? So uh, VDI made it a lot easier for us, and it also made it a lot easier for the administrators and the, the users because it was a one-stop shop for all your applications, your services, your data, all delivered in a nice little buttoned-up desktop. Because yeah, so we're coming a while ago, the, the, the year of DAS is more likely to happen someday than the year of VDI because VDI was so limiting, but at the same time, a lot of people found success there. Go ahead, Jenny. No, no, I was just going to make the comment that, you know, we could have could have watched the three-minute video, this rap battle, if you will, between VDI and DAS, and probably skip the podcast. This is pretty funny. Yeah. I, I love the fact that the, I know we can't hear it here, but the tune is still like my favorite, just 90s rap, 90s hip-hop. Don't hate yeah, I got to go back and watch it. You can't make this stuff I got to go up. back and watch it. <laughs> well, guys, thanks for joining. This is a, this is a fun topic. Uh, Patrick, what's next in your world? I know you said you had a um, presentation you had a, in just a few minutes. Yeah, I've got a privacy presentation for a company, um, which is pretty fun because I already have a bunch of their breach. I already have a bunch of their passwords and usernames. Um, and we're talking about privacy. So it'll, it'll start the meeting off right of like, uh, here, here is 44 passwords that your company is using right now, uh, out in the real world, uh, that someone can do bad things with. So it'll make it real fun in about, you know, 10 minutes when we get into it a little bit. And, and at the end of the day, you'd, you'd rather know than not know, even if it means you're going to be the butt of a totally, few jokes. Totally. Yep. Yep. And I think sometimes yeah. that's the hard part about a lot of this stuff is, Sometimes we want to just not know, uh, and ignorance is bliss, but you you really want to know, even no matter how bad or good it is, so that you can adjust and be like, oh, well, this these users are using these terrible passwords. Uh, let's make sure we give them a little coaching session real quick and audit these passwords. Mm-hmm. Um, since they are still, you know, all the password list stuff we're doing, they still have access to the keys to the kingdom in many deployments, you know? Jeremy Todd, what's next in your world after this call? I am headed up to uh, New Jersey, in fact. So we're doing a beers with engineers up in, um, I got an SE up in the Jersey patch, Bill Chapel, and we're going to host some folks. Have a good time. That'd be fun. Mm-hmm. And I've got a couple of interviews scheduled for a uh, SE position I have available in, available in Toronto. Ooh. Yeah. Well, in both cases, on the uh, beers with engineers or the uh, hiring new SE, you know, let Gentegra know we can help, and we we have people everywhere these days, and we want to help drive people in, in your direction. That's where we're heading, Guys, I appreciate you jumping on. We'll do it again next Monday. Great. Thanks, Patrick. Safe travels, Have you on for the first one? No problem. Thank y'all. Y'all have a great. All day. right. See you guys. All right. Enjoy. Thanks.